The Annie Staples Show is brought to you by GameTime, your new go-to app for the best deals on last-minute tickets. College football ticket prices tend to drop right before the game starts. GameTime tracks prices in real time from thousands of trusted sellers, then shows you all the best last-minute deals with prices up to 60% off. More than 12 million fans have downloaded the GameTime app and discovered the fastest, easiest way to get into the game. The app is simple, quick, and easy to navigate. By the way, you can use GameTime to score last-minute concert tickets as well. So head to the App Store or Play Store now to download GameTime and score awesome deals on last-minute tickets. Welcome to the Andy Staples Show. Light schedule edition, Nicole Auerbach, but lots of things happened. Lots of juicy, juicy things that I think are going to have some repercussions down the road. We, we've got the we've got Georgia beating Florida. Obviously, that's the the easiest on field thing we can talk about because Georgia takes control of the SEC East. The Bulldogs' goals are all in, in front of them. They answer a lot of the questions that that had come up after the loss to South Carolina. And that's great, but you have USC getting throttled by Oregon, which kind of feels like the end for Clay Helton. You have Miami crushing Florida State in Tallahassee, which makes Willie Taggart's position even more precarious. So where shall we start, Nicole Auerbach? Um, well, let, how about something that you didn't explicitly bring up? How about that it was a really good day for the Pac-12? We, we don't have those that often. And I feel like yes. the Pac-12 has, is having a moment in the sun. It did not eat itself today. Yeah, it was a, but basically it was, a, it, was, it was exactly the best case scenario. You have Utah beating Washington, Oregon beating USC. They both look good doing it. So we're still set for that, like, hopefully that collision path in the Pac-12 championship game. But you still have two playoff teams alive and in the hunt in November. Are they really, though? Yes, yes. A one-loss Pac-12 champion is in the playoff hunt. The hunt. Absolutely. Not in the playoff, but in the hunt. Well, no, but but Oklahoma losing opened up this possibility now, and I think we need to give them their due because they have been written off earlier than this, even this season, by us. Maybe not us specifically, but us as the just general. Yes, the the group of us, and and the, it felt the media narrative and and the fans as a whole. Yes, the royal us did write them off, and I will say the royal us was feeling not great about the Pac-12 early in the Washington Utah game, and yeah. early on in the USC Oregon game. Yeah, I think that's fair, but I'm saying like the overall outcome, best case scenario for the league. Absolutely, and. The Oregon State Beavers are on a roll. That's well, I mean, that's that's the most important part. That's like when Rutgers gets a win. Huge for the Big Ten. Yeah, it is It is interesting, though, because you're right. Oregon and Utah may need a little help still, but if one of them comes out of it with one loss, they're definitely still going to be in the conversation, and that is all the Pac-12 could ask for right now. Now, the, the, the thing about the conversation with Oregon and USC is – the conversation immediately is going to be more what happens now. Did you see the photo of the stands 10 minutes before kickoff? Yes. That is alarming, to say the least. And that's what, I mean, it, 
listen, we know people in the USC fan base had checked out on Clay Helton. We, we realized the recruits uh, seem to have checked out on, on him as well. But going into tonight's game, they still had a chance to be in control of their destiny in the Pac-12. Heck, they still could win the Pac-12 South. But what you saw was Oregon flexing on USC with, you know, quite a few LA area recruits and saying, Hey, LA area kids come on up to Eugene. If you'd like to win Pac 12 titles, I just don't see how this keeps going forward. Well, and and that's going to be the question. Now you've also gotten AD in place. Well, I guess not officially Mm -hmm. announced, but you know, this is now things can start to happen at USC And I don't know if you go the midseason firing route. Chris Vanini, our colleague, and I are working on a story that will come out this week about why and how you do make a midseason change. Um, And there's a lot of reasons you don't, right? And so, you know, it's getting more interesting, I think, with the timing, with the early signing period, which is essentially the signing period, being in December now. Um, So that'll be something to, to keep in mind. But also, you know, you need to have someone who can make that decision, actually get to campus, actually get time to make an evaluation and and make moves. But certainly it seems like the writing is on the wall if it hadn't already been there. Yeah, USC has no obvious interim. So I would not be stunned if they just let Clay Helton finish out the season and they don't say anything, don't make any move. And then the day uh, the day the season ends, they, they fire him and right. probably had the coaching search already underway at that point. But it certainly feels like a fait accompli at this point, which, you know, I, I hate it for Clay Helton because he's such a nice guy, but they they have to be better than this. Yes. USC. Yes. Well, and, and so that's I mean, when, when you talk about like the crowd and the level of interest around the program and things like that that's where you just can't have that when you're USC. And and that's where it's very similar to what you're talking about with what's going on at FSU. I mean, we have seen our beat writer, Tashawn Reed, post photos of the crowds um, at FSU home games and things like that. I mean, it is not not an exaggeration to say that that stuff can fall off a cliff fast in terms of fan interest, donor interest, and the money mm -hmm. flowing into your program. Well, I did a, I did a story about this a couple of weeks ago because after they lost to Wake Forest, the, there was some conversation around Willie Taggart that, that it had changed a bit. The, the thinking had gone from they can't possibly afford to fire Willie Taggart with his $17 million buyout to, you know what, if this gets any worse, you could lose as much on ticket sales, donations, parking, all that stuff, as you would – to buy him out, because remember, yeah, it's only five million cheaper to buy him out after next year. So, it, do you want to have dead man walking coaching next year and trying to recruit the rest of this year? I I don't know. So they're in a situation right now where they have to beat BC at in Chestnut Hill next week in the Red Bandana game for BC. Yep. By the way, so they're going to be fired up. They have to beat them to make a bowl game because well, they're not beating Florida. Well, we're also talking about a BC team that is playing better than they have all season too. 58 yes. points against Syracuse, set a bunch of school records. Could have so, scored a thousand. Yeah, I mean, it was on pace to, you know, it, it's funny, like to to get into the, like a thousand total yards of offense. I mean, like it was, they were doing whatever they wanted. So that's the team you're going up against that now has five wins, certainly looks at least on track to have a Steve Adazio seven win season. As always, at the very <laughs> least. 
And that's a team that lost badly to Kansas early in the year. So you have a lot of different moving pieces. And you're right, though. You've got to win that game. And those two programs are trending in the opposite directions right now. Yeah, and the other big problem is losing to Miami at home the way you did mm-hmm. is a big problem when you are trying to stay out of the three-hole in the big three in the state of Florida because Florida is obviously in the one spot right now. Miami and Florida State were basically playing for number two today, and Miami looked like a lot better program. Now, Miami's not looked like that all season, but who knows? Maybe they got things figured out. And if you're Florida State, you are you're tightening up right now. If you're John Thrasher, the president of Florida State, who does not want to fire Willie Taggart, I cannot stress that enough. He doesn't want to do it. Well, well, but hold I don't on. know if he has hold a choice. On. I've been told by the public and quotes that were on the record that if Willie Taggart got hit by a bus, Urban Meyer would not be the head coach. So let's let's just get hypothetical real quick. All right. If you make that change, who yep. does Florida State look at? So if you're asking coaching uh, coaching search helper search firm, Andy Staples. Yes, that's who I'm asking. I, I am going to charge, by the way, half what the search firms charge. So, Oh, I will charge double. So still hire me. They'll still do it. Well, that's true. I think you're smarter than me because <laughs> I they're, they're going to be – you know those Peloton bikes? Yes. You know how those things started selling? They raised the price. They were too cheap. People thought they couldn't possibly be good at the price point they were at. So they raised them and then they couldn't keep them in stock anymore. See, I mean, that's that's what I'm saying. Double double what you think you're worth. Oh, man. So I was going to charge $37.5 and and cut cut it in half. You're going to charge $150K. All right. Yep. So if I'm your search firm, I'm going to tell you to just go hire Tony Elliott from Clemson. Because I, I think he'd be fantastic at any job. Florida State especially would be a good job for him because he, he knows how to recruit. You know he can call plays. You know he would be smart putting together a staff. He's a former engineer. I mean, you name it. He, he checks every possible box. And, Nicole, I know what you're going to say. Why wouldn't you hire someone with head coaching experience? To which I say to you, let's – Let's name the best coaches in America right now. Okay, Nick Saban. Yes, he was the Miami Dolphins head coach when Alabama hired him. Dabo Sweeney was the wide receivers coach at Clemson. Mm. Ryan Day was the offensive coordinator at Ohio State. Lincoln Riley was the offensive coordinator at Oklahoma. Ed Orgeron was the defensive line coach at LSU. Are you noticing a theme here? Uh, yeah, that it doesn't matter, and you should hire the best coach available, and yeah. especially if they are a hot assistant. Who, by the way, if you're talking about Tony Elliott, talk about any of those Clemson coordinators. They make a ton of money because they are so valuable. Yes. Because everyone would love to have them, but they choose to stay at Clemson. So I'm totally with you. I think that this cycle in particular, again, we don't know how – how many jobs are going to open up at this point? I think you've got to consider Arkansas a job as well. Oh, that yeah. is well, I'm, imminent. I'm, my search firm is putting Mike Leach there. Okay. Okay. Because it's a perfect fit. It's the most remote outpost in the SEC, though it is quite a bit more built up than than Lubbock or Pullman, uh, his two previous stops. But it does sort of fit the motif of the Mike, sli- uh, the, of the Mike Leach CV. 
Okay. He likes to be in the remote spot. Can he can he hike to work? Is that possible? Probably, yeah. There's okay. some nice places right around the campus. Okay. So th- there are maybe not that many jobs going to open depending on, you know, if USC opens and where they go to fill it. If it is not someone who then sets off a chain reaction of open jobs, there just may not be that many open jobs. But I think I'm with you that I think it's going to be about rising assistant coaches this year. It seems like we kind of oscillate between that and then head coaches from mm-hmm. like the group of five rising up or whatever it is. And I think ADs too. If if you go with an established coach who's been a head coach before and it doesn't work, maybe you're going to look that hot coordinator route or hot assistant route the next time, right? So I, I just think – I, I think this year they're not an obvious. There's not a Scott Frost. There's not a Tom Herman where it just what seems like PJ everyone. Fleck? Well, I'm interested to see here Andy Staples search for him on him too because how many places can you mm-hmm. row the boat? Can well, you they, can you bring that to wherever you go if you go somewhere in the SEC? I don't know. You can row the it, boat in the ACC. You can row the boat at Florida State. Okay. But here here's the thing. You don't leave Minnesota unless it's perfect because Minnesota has it's a money, great fit. Yep. facilities, everything you want. It better be the best job and in the world to you. It's a great division. Yes. Great division to be in. I, I was at Min- in Minneapolis this week and spent some time around that program. Oh, they're all in on rowing the boat. Like he's got the culture exactly where he wants it. They're doing things they haven't done since the 60s there. So I am totally with you. I would not be surprised if PJ Fleck is still in Minnesota next year at this time. Yeah, it, it is. They, they had, and remember, all of the Big Ten schools, every Big Ten school has a ton of money. Now, yes. whether they want to spend it or not is another question, but they all have it. So that's not going to be an issue. They'll be able to pay to keep whoever they want. So, yeah, I, I'm, I'm thinking if you're Florida State and you, you go after the guy, but I don't know that he would do it because it, it is a somewhat unstable situation and people will look at a school. If Florida State makes a move, they would make they would look at a school that just fired a coach after two years and say, "Ooh, I don't know about that." But what right. what, the, what the Florida State people will say is, "Listen, we we're not accustomed to hiring coaches." Bobby Bowden was there from 1976 to 2009, and then Jimbo Fisher was already hired as the head coach in waiting, so we didn't actually have to hire him. So right. we just didn't know what we were doing, and that's what they'll say. Now, here's the thing: my Tony Elliott plan. The other prong to that is you don't have to pay a buyout for Tony Elliott because mm. there's no buyout if he's if he gets a head coaching job. Well, and, that, and that's important, too, because like you said, you went through the finances. When, when you go through these changes, you're sometimes having to pay buyouts for your assistant coaches and the full staff. And then you're going to have to hire new staff. So it's not always just the head coaching salary that you have to think about. I mean, it's it's not always it's it's never there. There's right. a lot it's more a lot pieces more, to yeah. this. So, you know, that is something to consider. And, um, you know, normally I would be like two years. That's such a short leash. But things, you know, there's so much money at stake, especially to place like Florida State, that, again, it just it falls off a cliff quickly where you have to have these conversations. Yeah, it's it's bad. And and look, I thought Willie Taggart would be a great hire there. I, I am shocked that it has been as bad as it has. But. Watching that game today, and and I didn't get to watch all of it, obviously, because I, I was covering the Florida-Georgia game, but the parts of it I got to watch, they just look lifeless at the end. And yep. I don't know how you come back from that. The stands are going to be empty when they play Alabama State. Now, a lot of that's because they're playing Alabama State, but that's their last home game, and it is going to be pretty gnarly there. So 
I, I don't know. It, I, if they lose to Boston College, I think they'll make a move. I think USC is going to make a move. It, I, it may be a while before we hear anything about these moves, but I'm pretty sure those, you know, USC is going to get made. We'll see with Florida State what happens next week, but but my guess is if they lose, that gets made, and and then the then the pieces start to fall into place. Yep. And when when USC opens, that's gonna be that's gonna be a race. Now I, the Andy Staples search firm again, by the way, James Franklin is the I guy I would just, go after immediately. That's the the Nicole Auerbach search firm also agrees with that as well. Um, I think he'd be an I think he'd be a great fit there. Um, I think he would do. I think that the idea of all the things you have to embrace to be the USC head coach in LA, James Franklin has all that. So I'm with you. Apparently our search firms agree. Should we merge? We could we charge should, more. We should merge. We're going to charge quadruple now. Yes, exactly. 300 grand to hire Perf- your coach. You you know someone would actually hire this for that. Mike if we Bond said, might. If we said we will not let anything get out in terms of who you're talking to, you can deny, deny. No, we have not directly. We have not talked to Urban Meyer. Deny, deny. Like we can make it happen. We know how leaks work. Exactly, and we we would leak only to the the best people. We'd leak only to Bruce Feldman. And when it's done, so no one's mad at us. You exactly. know, like done but not done. That's when we'll we come on. We could definitely charge quadruple. All right, so three hundred grand for the greatest search firm of all time. Our back in Staples. Yes, I think I think it's a bargain, really. If you think it about is. it, it is. Again, we're talking about millions of dollars in buyouts that people have to pay when they hire the wrong coach. Now, what deal. if they just listen to this podcast, which is free, and just hire Tony Elliott Andy, for Andy? Just, just. Shh. <laughs> <laughs> well, that that that's the funny part about the search for everybody assumes that. Like the search firm is giving you a list of candidates. That's not really what they're doing. They they no, are there for no. plausible deniability. They're there to vet the people. Now USC has some experience with a search firm not vetting a candidate as well mm-hmm. as it should have with Steve Sarkeesian. But that's what they're really there for. It's it's not a case of I need a list. Now when they when they hire the search guy to find a volleyball coach, yes, that person yes. is probably giving them a list. Yes. And and I think again, a lot of this is it's it's privacy. It's again the deniability. A coach who's coaching in season can get up there and get asked, "Have you had any contact from USC?" And you can get up there and you can say no, exactly because you haven't directly done it. So again, I, I think if any athletic director is listening, these are all just reasons to hire us because we have great ideas for the big programs. We can also have great ideas for yours. Absolutely, and we have <laughs> staffing plans, by the way. If 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 a coach is leaving behind a staff, or the 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 place he's leaving is going to promote from within, so he's going to lose half his staff, we'll make staffing plans for you. It's it's a full service operation. Well, he might even write your speech for the press conference. I mean, it's, oh, but yeah, we could write a statement. Come on. Hey Nicole, we do need to pause for one second because we're going to talk a little bit about DoorDash. You know how that feels, or at least I do, when I've got my sweatpants on for the day. Not going out, but I'm sick of microwave leftovers and frozen pizza. Enter DoorDash, restaurant-quality food with a living room dress code. Ordering is easy. Open the DoorDash app, choose what you want to eat, and your food will be delivered to you wherever you are. Right now, 
our listeners can get $5 off their first order of $15 or more when you download the DoorDash app and enter the promo code STAPLES. So stretch out in your sweatpants, forget that flavorless microwave pizza, and order your favorite food from DoorDash. All right, back back to the on-field results. Uh, no one is yelling about firing Kirby Smart now, though they would have had they lost yes. to mm-hmm. Florida today, even though that would have been ridiculous. Uh, but we're going to get a lot deeper into that game because I was there, and, uh, and our Florida beat writer, Will Salmon, and our Georgia beat writer, Seth Emerson, uh, we talked quite a bit after the game, and you're going to hear that after Nicole and I get done talking. But, Nicole, I wanted to ask you about Georgia just sort of answering a lot of the yes. critics' questions that came about after that South Carolina loss. Yeah, I mean, they absolutely did that because, you know, since that game, in my mind, from afar, not inside the walls of either program, I had been thinking Florida's a better team. That Florida is the better chance to come out of the SEC East. In my mind, they're the ones I was penciling in to face Alabama or LSU. Um, and, I, you know, I was just – I was pretty much all in. I mean, I know they have their deficiencies – but I thought, you know, Kyle Trask, he's solid. They're not going to make a lot of mistakes offensively. Um, with Felipe Franks, it was a little bit more boomer bust. <laughs> and then, you know, I, I kind of just discounted Georgia. I just thought, you know, maybe we were all too high on them in the offseason, putting too much stock in that Notre Dame game. Notre Dame has flaws. Um, and so, you know, I, I just think it was just, it was just a very solid performance. They were aided by some debatable catches um which you know i'm sure only one debatable catch the other one the brian harrian catch was definitely a catch and was amazing okay i mean they both were amazing and usually i err on the side of if it's amazing it should count even if it's out of bounds or not quite a catch but i'm just saying like there was a valid a valid fan reaction that you can have oh yeah um that did not decide the game in any way but um, so, you know, I mean, it was just it was just a very thorough, solid performance. Um, I wrote about in the decisions that post on Sunday overnight, Saturday, about decisions that define the day. I wrote about those third downs, 12 third down conversions for Georgia. And, you know, that none bigger than that third and seven that iced the game at the end of the game. And I just thought Jake Fromm was was great. I thought the game plan was great. I just thought everything this this was the the Georgia performance that you know we had been kind of expecting to see week in week out, and then that South Carolina game happened. Yeah, I, I feel like they answered the questions. Now it doesn't get really easier. They they've got to beat Missouri still. They still have to play Auburn and Texas A and M before they get to Georgia Tech. So right. I, th- this is this is no cakewalk for them, even though they are basically in control of the SEC East, weird things could happen and, and, and give Florida another chance. But, you know, for Florida, I think they're in a situation where they may not lose another game. They could be sitting there at 10-2 and two at the end of the season, go play in a New Year's Six Bowl, have basically a little bit better season than they had last year, and then they can go into next year thinking, all right, in Jacksonville, now it becomes a must-win. Now it becomes you're expected to win the SEC East, which is – which is where you want to be at Florida. But, the, you know, given what Dan Mullen took over, I think I think he's in a fair spot. Now, Kirby's got a little different set of expectations. You know, if if they didn't win the SEC East this year, this season was a complete failure. And, and really, even if they win it and don't win the SEC and don't make the playoff, it'll still be considered a failure. So yes. they, they got a ways to go to get out of the woods if you're Georgia. But I thought today was a really good step forward for them given what they've got 
up ahead. I, I yes. did want to ask you a, a little about the, the Memphis SMU game. I feel like it gave us everything we wanted right down to the insane two-point conversion before the onside kick at the end, the more than 100-point total. It was it was as advertised. Yeah, it was it was actually the game I was looking most forward to. I know, you know, you were going to be at the cocktail party and, you know, clearly it was that and the two Pac-12 games were the headliner games. But SMU Memphis was awesome. Game day was awesome in Memphis. I, it, it's nice when a game and two programs of that caliber actually live up to it in a spotlight moment for the group of five. And, um, you know, we'd be remiss to not mention that that two point conversion thing is becoming a thing. Oh, this absolutely. is what analytics are telling coaches to do. And, you know, we've seen it with Pat Fitzgerald. We've seen it with Manny Diaz. Um, our colleague Chris Vanini wrote about it a week or two ago. And it's just this idea that if you go for two earlier than we're used to seeing it, you put yourself in position to win the game instead of tying it to go to overtime. Because if, if, if SMU had recovered the onside kick and got the ball back, they're only down six, so if they score and kick an extra point, they win the game instead of sending it to overtime. And that's actually kind of cool. And it's it's fascinating that it is starting to catch on because, you know, Sonny Dykes was a coach that I didn't necessarily know, you know, b- believed in this analytics method and this strategy. So now it's just it just seems to be kind of catching on across the sport. Well, and I like it because if you still have to get an onside kick, which is no guarantee, why not? at least take that other little bit out of there because if it seems like you got to do all this stuff to get to overtime and then can you win it overtime that seems like a lot to a lot to chew on but if you get that two point conversion you have more momentum and you put even more pressure on the opposing team as you go into the onside kick i, yeah, I understand from a from a, an emotional standpoint beyond the analytics why you'd want to do that because it really does boost your momentum well, and how about this? When it happened in the Miami game against Virginia Tech. They missed Tech, the extra point. They missed the extra point. But at that point, you were still tied because yeah. they went for it when they were down 14 and scored. So then they got it within six. And it was – I just feel like even that's a good reason to go for it because then it gives you a buffer in case something happens and you miss the extra point. Yeah, and the other thing is if you don't get the two-point conversion, you're – you're down eight. You got to do it again. And you you, you do it still again. have to get the onside kick, and you get another shot at a two point conversion to go to overtime. So, yeah, it it makes perfect sense. You know what else makes perfect sense, Nicole? What? Hiring the Hourback Staples search yes. firm. We love you here at the Athletic. Our bosses, You're, you've been great to us. But if we get like two clients, we're out of here. Absolutely, and you guys know where to reach us. We're very public facing very easy our, to find very very easy to find our contact information in fact you probably already have it athletic directors all right nicole i know you need to go write up a business plan yeah i'm gonna start pitching to uh to all the ad's i know they're gonna wonder why they're getting texts from me at one in the morning but listen there's money to be made here yes deal i'll work on the business cards and get back to you all right ad's hire the hourback staples search firm you listeners though I still work here for a few more minutes. We'll be right back with Seth Emerson and Will Salmon from Jacksonville to talk about the aftermath of the world's largest outdoor cocktail party. Guys, if you haven't already, I know you want to check out Mitch Sherman and Max Olson's Nebraska football podcast, The Sellouts. There's a lot going on in Lincoln. 
Huskers coming back from West Lafayette after another loss. There's a lot to talk about in Mitch and Max Air Podcast twice weekly, once on Monday for their, their athletic exclusive episodes. And on Friday, you can listen to them on Apple, Spotify, Google, or your favorite podcast app. Don't forget to click the follow button on their series show page in the athletic app for push notifications when new episodes release and subscribe to them on your favorite podcast platform for show updates. That's the sellouts with Mitch Sherman and Max Olson. They're talking corn huskers. And oh man, there's a lot to talk about right now. Greetings from the world's largest outdoor cocktail party where all the cocktails have been consumed and possibly vomited out. I am here with Will Salmon, our Florida beat writer, Seth Emerson, our Georgia beat writer, and we're going to try to break down all that we just saw in a pretty fascinating game. Seth, I'm going to start with you. Georgia now is in the position that we thought they'd be in. There were some bumps along the way. There were a lot of complaints along the way, and it seemed like Kirby Smart kind of took aim at pretty pretty much every criticism after the game. I counted four references to outside noise that they claim they don't hear um, in my column that I guess will be online by the time everybody has heard this uh, or is hearing this. The uh, One of the coaches on the way out of walking out of the press box tonight commented, a lot of quiet people up here, uh, as if we were the ones who were you know, supposed to be yelling at them and whatever. But they, they hear it. Uh, and this was a very satisfying game for them. And I, I think Kirby in particular felt it about his quarterback, about Jake Fromm. And it's interesting that he was very open about the fact that he sat down with Jake Fromm twice this week leading up to the game just to kind of, I guess, talk to him and help his confidence, feel him out, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, it, it's very interesting that, you know, this last few weeks felt like we were kind of going – maybe a little too low on Georgia, a little too high on Florida. Well, I wanted to ask you, this is about the game we would have expected from Florida at the beginning of the season. But after we saw Florida beat Auburn, after they they hung with LSU, after they beat South Carolina, it, it seemed like they were capable of more. But is this about where this team's ceiling is? Yeah, it's about what I was getting at when I was writing my story tonight, too, is that, you know, I think it's fair to look at it from both ways, really. I mean, you could look at it and say, OK, a few months ago, Florida had no business being in the conversation for the college football playoff. Right. But then you say to yourself, OK, this team is playing a lot better. Uh, they're getting a really good coaching from Dan Mullen and company. Maybe maybe they are overachieving. So, like, you got to look at it both ways. I think it's okay to look at it both ways and kind of expect more from Florida tonight um, and, and be upset with that if you're a Florida fan. I think that's fair. Um, but at the same time, um, the perspective for a lot of people will also be, hey, this team is way ahead of the game. And then to that, I think also the counter is sort of, well, how far how far away are they? You know, and that's really the key question for me is that, because I don't really know. I don't really know if this necessarily means that they've taken a step I don't know if you look at this from, okay, 2019 to 2020 mm -hmm. and how much unison is there between one year to the next. I'm, I'm really not sure because I, I, in this day and age of college football, your team could just change on an instant and on a dime. It feels like they're closer than than sitting here last year after this game. Now, the, the one thing that everybody kind of identified early in the season was this is an offensive line that may struggle against good defensive fronts. And they didn't necessarily struggle to protect Kyle Trask, but they did struggle to – to run the ball, and, and Kirby Smart kind of mentioned after the game that 
their whole plan was suffocate the run game and make Kyle Trask win with his arm, and uh, they're one score away from that. Yeah, you know, I'm not really sure if, like, the, the game plan really was to run the ball for Florida. I think Dan Mullen talked a lot about how um, if Georgia got out to a lead, then they're going to be passing the ball because he said that they were not a very good team if they needed to come from behind. And so the game plan kind of switched and adjusted early for Dan Mullen, I thought. Um, but even so, it's like... It, I'm not, I'm not sold on the complete idea that the run game was like completely shut down. They didn't choose to run the ball a lot of times, and also they didn't have the ball to run the ball. So right. that also was a factor. Like they didn't have the time of possession to be running the ball, and um, their offense, what's worked all season, is passing, passing the ball. So uh, you could quibble and say like maybe they should have changed some things up on those short yard situations, and I would agree. Um, but that they still played to their their identity pretty much. Yeah, it seemed like the one kind of flaw they had that, that you hadn't seen much of the season is not being able to get off the field on, on third down. Oh yeah, that was that was a bad one, you know. And, and but like you kind of saw like a little little traces of that though throughout the season. Uh, Max Olson does a great article every week with um, stop, stop rate, rate yep. you know. And you and if you look at it, you know, Florida is is up there in stop rate, but they're not up there, or at least for the majority of the season, they weren't up there in uh, third and out three and out so that always was in the back of my mind of okay they 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 allow drives to sort of accumulate and when you're up against a a better team like this one um, that's going to burn you more often than not Seth I thought it was interesting that Georgia not very successful running the ball early kept at it kept at it and then late in the second quarter things start to open up a little bit early in the second half it was not very much sledding, but then as the game went on, stuff would open up again. Uh, how important was it for them to just keep going and, and make those holes happen? Well, Kirby alluded to that, and he's talked about that before. He even talked about it, uh, I think, in the post-Kentucky game, which is you know, when he said people thought we were boring and kept running it up the middle. Well, I think part of the wearing down Kentucky and getting all that in the second half was continuing to bang it in the first half. But I think the key was this game that really did open up the offense. And when they opened up the offense and did different stuff like play action, toss sweeps, legitimate screens, throwing the ball over the middle, getting the tight end involved, a lot of this stuff that Kirby alluded to in the press conference realizing, I mean, he said at one point, you want us to throw more of the tight ends. There we go. Um, again, doesn't hear the outside noise, but apparently heard that. Uh, when you do that, that does open up the running game. So I think what people were mad about was they were doing that kind of jamming it up the middle, man ball kind of thing too much, that you needed to mix it in with other stuff, especially when the man ball wasn't working. Because frankly, it, it's not like they could sit there and say that over the first seven weeks they had been – that this had worked. They they had lost to South Carolina at home. If they were 7-0, and they could say, don't complain. You know, it's working. This is our, No, 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 no. They lost a game they shouldn't have lost. And they didn't look great. Most of the other time, like they did not have a start to finish complete performance on offense against any power five team yet. They did tonight because they mixed it up. Everybody's going to point to Lawrence Cager, the Miami grad transfer who had a huge game, had the the touchdown that really broke it open. But they also got it to Charlie Warner a couple times, a tight end. Eli Wolf made a huge catch on a, a late third and seven. How important was it to get more people involved rather than just, you know, DeAndre Swift. Well, Brian Harrion has been involved 
already, but he was he caught a slant pass, and that was another thing they hadn't been doing much. I mean, Brian Harrion looks like a guy that could play in the NFL as a receiver. He might be moved there. Um, but the tight end I spoke about, Charlie Warner, for instance, had been doing way too much pass protection this year. He's a weapon in the passing game. They finally used him that way, and they basically challenged their, their 5-0 linemen to say, you know what, you're on your own tonight. We're not going to help you as much. We're not going to chip as much with the tight ends, whatever. We need those guys out there catching the ball too. And and that worked. And, yeah, I mean, Cager is huge. It's amazing that a guy that was really an afterthought on the grad transfer market and a guy that was not thought of as this impact player at Miami, which was not a successful program last year, is able to come in here and he's making some money for himself. He's he's Georgia's leading receiver and he's he's Jake Fromm's favorite target. He's got an immediate trust with the guy and him being healthy this game and able to play was huge. Let's talk big picture guys and Willa, I'll start with you. Florida is probably not going to win the SEC East now barring some some weirdness. But what can this season be for the Gators and do you think it will be viewed as progress, acceptable, given what Dan Mullen inherited at the beginning of 2018. Yeah, I, I think it's acceptable is probably the term. That's probably the, something that you could probably use and point to. Um, not what they wanted. Uh, not too many people, like I said, outside of Gainesville, we're talking about Florida being, uh, you know, college football playoff contender early, early in the year, um, early in the calendar year, I should say. But they did. They they kind of did that. They they thought they believed uh, that they could make it, um, and so this is not going to be what they wanted. Is it going to be still solid? Sure. Uh, the offensive line, everybody knew, was a huge question mark. It was a work in progress all year. It still is. <laughs> and we're, what, 10 games into the season almost? So, yeah, it's 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 probably where most people thought that they would be at this point. Now, what is the next step for them? I mean, I would assume keep developing, and this time next year they win this game. Is that Would that be the natural progression for Dan Mullen? Ideally, sure, but you know you just don't know if that's going to happen. I mean, this is a team that loses; uh, it's going to lose Jabari Zuniga, Jonathan Grenard, the two guys that everybody talked about all week. Probably going to lose your corners and C.J. Henderson, maybe Marco Wilson to the draft. Um, don't know what you're going to have at quarterback. You know, that's always a fun question. Kyle here. Trask, baby. Hey, yeah, I guess uh, running back, same thing. Uh, P. Ryan's not going to be back, so the offensive line. You're hoping that they make a step forward, but you don't know. Um, so it's a, it's a bunch of you know, it's a lot of different personnel that's going to be on this team next year, I think. And Georgia, Seth, their goals all still in front of them, even though I think a lot of the outside world kind of checked out on them after the South Carolina loss. But they really are in a position where if they just keep winning, they can make the playoff. That's easier said than done. They're going to have to go to Auburn uh, if they – get past them or, you know, then then you're talking about maybe LSU or Alabama in the SEC championship. What does Georgia have to get better at to be competitive in that kind of game? Right. I think you saw glimpses of it. What was Florida able to do tonight? They were able to pass the ball. And I think we've seen that all year that Georgia's pass defense is susceptible. They've got a really good corner in Eric Stokes. He gave up one long pass tonight, but otherwise he's been kind of a lockdown corner. But they're susceptible at the other corner spots. Richard LeCount, the free safety, sometimes can give up a big play. Um, they haven't been challenged by a great running team yet. We'll, we'll see, especially if they end up playing an Alabama or Clemson, which looks like they will now. 
two teams that can do both run and pass. I, I think that Georgia's defense is going to give up a little bit more than they did in these games. That's why it was always incumbent on the offense to up its game. The, the formula for this Georgia team this year to be successful was always to have a very good offense and a good defense. If the defense becomes very good also, great. Uh, if the offense slips down to good while the defense only remains good, they're not going to win the SEC. But in the big picture, this win for Georgia tonight kind of resets them to where we kind of expected them to be. Um, they're in many ways probably a good matchup for Auburn, but that game is in Jordan-Hare, which is a very tough place to play. If Georgia loses that, they probably still win the division unless they slip up and also lose to Missouri or Texas A&M. Um, they would be going into the SEC championship 10-2, and two, probably – I mean, I don't know. We'll see what the rest of the playoff field looks like. But they probably needed to run the table. That's what the South Carolina loss did to them. But you're looking at it now and saying they got past one of their two toughest games. They've reset themselves with some confidence. And they're very realistically ready to go back into the SEC championship, the same position they've been the previous two years, which is win and in. And the other thing about this Georgia team is I think they're a play-to-the-level-of-their-opponent type of team, which they weren't in 2017 and 2018. But that could still be good enough to get them into the SEC championship game at 11-1 and and then be good enough to stay with LSU and Alabama because we know they have the talent and the depth to do it. So what you guys have just heard, if, you, if you're not already subscribers to The Athletic, these are the kind of guys and, and ladies – we don't want to give Grace Rayner covering Clemson short shrift here either. But these are the kind of folks we have covering your favorite teams everywhere. So that's the kind of intelligent analysis you are going to get every day if you subscribe to The Athletic. So go ahead. Theathletic.com slash Andy Staples. That's theathletic.com slash A-N-D-Y-S-T-A-P-L-E-S. 40% off your first year. You will love it. I promise. So subscribe to this podcast. Subscribe to The Athletic, and you will be a much more knowledgeable and happier person. Good night from Jacksonville. It has been a blast. I did not have one cocktail. I'm very disappointed in that. But, hey, so you got to work. <laughs> <laughs>